I would like to welcome you all for this uh, retreat that we have here together through until about uh, 3, 3.30 on that Sunday afternoon. And in this the opening uh, talk uh, with you, I'd rather give some uh, Dharma teaching rather than the usual kind of opening talk that I've given far too long and far too often, which usually is around a little bit about Buddhism, a little bit about the, the tradition from the East to the West, uh, etc. So I thought to myself as I came over here this evening that I'll dispense with all of that and uh, because you can read it anywhere anyway and uh, just just give uh, some uh, teachings this evening and then at the end of the period uh, speak to you specifically about the weekend we have together about the timetable, the day and the general formation of things For those of you who have had some exposure to the Buddhist tradition, to teachings known as the Dharma in the Buddhist tradition, will have heard or will have read some time or other some reference to what is called the Middle Way. And the theme of the Middle Way runs right through the teaching. It runs through the teaching in so far as it deserves to be a rather important and necessary consideration for all of us uh, in our daily life. So that you and I, as much as humanly possible, try to be aware when we're wandering into the extreme and the impact and the consequences of that. That can show itself in lifestyle. It can show itself with preoccupation and obsessing over something or someone. It can show itself in the extremes of thinking that we get some idea into our head we grasp onto it we get fixated about it and we keep going over it and over it and over it again and again and it becomes an extreme way of thinking sometimes we find the extreme way of thinking is extremely one-sided so we have a dispute with another we take up one position the other person he, she, they, us, them, whatever takes up another position and there is a polarisation that's going on me and you, us and them, whatever it might be. And both persons 
or both sides seem to keep reinforcing all of this keep repeating it keep getting stuck in the position and thus in Dharma language in the language of uh, teaching it tends to show and indicate to us that there is a polarity there is a gap a difference and in the holding to the view an extreme standpoint is adopted sometimes we find ourselves in some kind of extreme position and it isn't unusual for us that we have the idea in our mind when we get the other person to change we'll change both can easily end up with the same strategy (laughs) so it becomes difficult for us to really take a clear and honest look at ourselves because we're hoping expecting, demanding, pressurising another or others to change and when they change, we'll change when they are more open, we'll be more open when they are more understanding, we'll be more understanding so both sets of mind find themselves in a state of intolerance and the outcome of all of that of course is stress is pressure is tension is unhappiness is a miserable way of existence so Dharma teachings are an endeavour to remind us and to point out to us the little way in all of this what would help me as a human being if I'm in a fragmented situation what would help me to look more carefully to raise more questions inside of myself to see whether I can shake up a fixated standpoint I was just coming back from uh, a city today in continental Europe and while uh, sitting on the plane I, uh, as airlines like to do give out the newspaper and I was reading the Daily Telegraph I'm not quite sure if it fits into the middle way but um, some may think so there were a number of interesting comments by the chief rabbi of Britain who as I take some interest in Middle East affairs and go there quite regularly with their, until the beginning of this month seen from some viewpoint some might viewpoint seem to have adopted a rather hard line 
one-sided, rather understandably, view of a difficult and distressingly painful situation. But in a lengthy newspaper report today, the same chief rabbi seems to have had some change of heart and be and has engaged in some questioning. He's lost a few friends, of course, in the Jewish community, but to his credit, he engaged in some questioning. Not so fixated about the standpoint. It's not unusual in a person coming into a retreat, sitting on the meditation cushion, walking up and down, suddenly and quite unexpectedly, you might find yourself in or going over something which seems like a really hot issue in your life. One thought, oh, I'll pop down to Gaia House. Three days, nice retreat, on donation. That's good. Won't cost me a lot. Or whatever. And I'll just have a quiet bit of breathing space from the rest of existence. Why not? And then in the midst of this club med, med standing for meditation, in the midst of this club med, something arises inwardly. The inner life grabs hold of it, fastens onto it. There's a lot of intensity around it. And there's pressure and stress and agitation. It could be about something in relationship to the past. Past could have been when you walked out of your front door earlier on today or whatever. Past could have been 50 years ago. Those of you have a past that goes back that long. It could be something with regard to the future or something going on in the present. And if we're listening to ourselves and taking some notice of ourselves, we'll pick up the signal, we'll sense inside the self, the I, the me, the my, is pushing itself into a position, grabbing hold of it, identifying with it, becoming it, and not only is peace of mind lost in the moment, but how much of it, when it's going on with us, we wait, we want an outcome to provide peace of mind. Think of any situation in your life. Some, sometimes people walk in with them. One doesn't have to wait till tomorrow morning when you get up. 
sometimes we come into a retreat centre, there's already issues going on inside of us. And there can be a lot of thought going on with it. And that those feelings and those thoughts can be carrying some kind of implicit message in it. What comes out of this? If it goes my way, I get peace of mind, and if it doesn't, it's a nightmare. If it goes my way, it'd be great, and if it doesn't work out how I want it to be, it's going to be distressingly painful. I wonder if there's any middle ground for more of that. I wonder if there's a way of looking and exploring, and we'll touch upon this, in which the outcome of an event may not matter too much. Anything. In the same newspaper, you can tell I read the Daily Telegraph on the two-hour flight quite well today. The newspaper had a report. I'm sure there's a great interest of Daily Telegraph readers. It was about people who worked very hard. Far too many, I have to say. Meet them all the time. It's not easy. And the report said that wealthy people in Britain earn over £60,000 a year. I hope none of you earn that amount of money, but some people do. And in those who are in this category of being wealthy, it seems that the majority, I can't remember the figures precisely, report that they wish they didn't work so hard. This is the most popular mantra in Western society. I wish I didn't work so hard. I wish I wasn't so busy. I wish I didn't have to do so much. I wish I had more time for. These these mantras far more successful than Om Mani Padme Hum, I have to say. So the main set is, in this case, work, work, work. And it can be at the great expense of happiness, time with friends, enjoyment of nature, hanging out, a decent cafe latte, or whatever. And the signal inside of us is work, 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 work for all the so-called good reasons. And we recognise that in the thinking we've exaggerated something so much it's an extreme. It's an extreme. 
And so there was one report of one person in the business community whose income was £300,000 a year. What would anybody want to do with that amount of money? But anyway, they could give it to Guy House if they wish. And rather courageously, he decided not to work for £300,000 a year, to make a significant cut because he has triplets. Some of us only got one, like you made it three. And he'd rather give the time, more time, to his three nine-year-old sons. And sometimes there is a thought, and I there's people that actually quite a, a strong one, that being a Dharma teacher, I hear it alarmingly often, that a person can get through their life, 30, 40, 50, or more, Work, 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 and there's a terrible feeling inside of having missed out on something. That the doing, doing, doing was at the expense of something else, and then one of the regrets of life is, I wish I'd handled my existence differently. Mm, by this time, join the grey-haired club, or the uh, drooping shoulders club, or the uh, walking stick club, or the Zimmer frame club, or whatever one we end up with. And then we look at the movement of our life and say, my God, I exaggerated so much, it became an extreme way of living. And it takes courage, not only to, for us to question that, but to change it. A friend of mine told me recently that she has had 22 years of education. Now, those of us who went to school at five and split at fifteen, and that seemed a bit too long, but twenty-two years of education. Now she has a, a job in her thirties. And the thought that arises is I've learned so much, but I've missed so much as well. I've missed out on so much. So, Dharma teachings and Dharma practices are a reminder to us of taking a good, honest look at our life. To put hand on heart and to ask ourselves are there any extremes that are going on in my life? If so, not to be shy with regard to naming them and to see 
if we can dig out of ourselves some resources to help explore a middle way. And an authentic middle way in Dharma teaching has a very single, singular purpose to it. That is to free us up. To free us up. And I would say, perhaps I hope many of you will agree, that the freeing of us up is one of the great human aspirations to free ourselves up. And the middle way is an encouragement for that. You might ask yourself, what are the two when the Buddha, and the Buddha, and then let me backtrack a little bit, as a bit means two and a half thousand years. When the Buddha went to Sarna, following his enlightenment, Sarna is a small village outside of Varanasi, village I know uh, rather, rather well. And he gave uh, teaching on the Middle Way. And in giving uh, the, uh, the very first teachings uh, on this, he pointed out to us of the awareness and the vigilance that's required for us to see where we're getting stuck. And there's a variety of ways that that might show itself. What are the two most common? What are the two most common forms of getting caught in extremes? One of them is self-blame. One is self-blame. The putting down of ourselves. The finding fault with ourselves. The being heavy and hard on ourselves. Being self-critical, the judgmental mind turning on itself and all that list of what's wrong with me, what I don't like about myself, what I'm, uh, what's not good enough, what should be better. And this fault-finding, self-blame, self-negativity, self-reactivity, is one extraordinary common form of reactivity. And sometimes, one of the ways that it shows itself is somebody can say something quite warm to us, something quite appreciative, say a kind word, express something we may have done or something about ourselves. And it isn't unusual immediately for the inner voice to arise to show the opposite. 
two people having a, a conversation, I overheard. One person, a man, said to the woman, expressed close friend, appreciation for her age and for her complexion. Just a warm, warm, kind gesture of support. Just, just special appreciation that people will do about something. In this case, about an aspect of her appearance, expressed appreciation for her, her complexion. The immediate response was, oh, but I've got the, these red, this red spot on the side of my face. Here, it's some stress from something or other, and this is it. Straight away. Before hardly had the words landed, nice expression of appreciation, then out comes a statement to say, oh no, no, it's not really like that because I've got this. This pattern, this habit of finding fault, putting ourselves down, only seeing what's wrong. We don't realise it's a tendency. We don't realise it's a point of frequent reactivity. And we actually identify with it. If we keep on doing it, what hope to feel really happy? What hope to feel joy. What hope to hear appreciation and kindness and warmth and praise and love if it touches a tendency inside which says, oh no, it's not really like that. The Buddha said, there is no one in the whole world that can cause us so much trouble as our own mind. There is no one in this whole world who can cause us so much trouble as our own mind. The other extreme is the extreme of wanting. It has a relationship to that other extreme of putting oneself down and this one is of constantly wanting. And it could be wanting for this, whatever this is, wanting for that, wanting for more of, etc. So there's some voice of dissatisfaction and the wanting for more of. Often it could be pleasure, obviously. It could be possession ownership. It could be to be with somebody. It could be for a place, or an item, or a good, or goods, or, or whatever it might be. And so we easily find ourselves, our happiness, our joy, and our peace, very much related, once by presence or by its absence, whether or not we're caught up in self-blame, fault-finding, putting ourselves down at one extreme, or on the other extreme of the self, wanting, wanting, wanting. 
In either case, where's the life? Where's the joy? Where's the fun? Where's the play? Where's the silence? Where's the sense of mystery? Where's the wonder? Where's the sweetness of the nature? Where's the magic of life? Gone! Gone because we're either spending half our time getting on our own case because we're not good enough, or the other half of our time thinking about what we want and what we need. If I don't get what I want, then I'm really going to be in a mess. So this little way teaching a kind of sense and a feeling in another way. And an important doorway to that is the here and now. The preciousness and the significance and deep and beautiful significance of what it is to be to really sense here and now. In the time over the weekend that we uh, had together, with regard to the uh, morning period, you'll see the timetable on the uh, notice uh, board there, that in the morning period in the hall after the work period, it includes a couple of hours uh, in the hall. Of course, sometimes people may need to go to the toilet, in and out, no problem. Um, But both in the sitting and the standing uh, posture, some uh, stretching, um, uh, meditation uh, instruction, and uh, use of the time uh, in here together. One of the things I'd like to uh, strongly encourage and that is the total absence of use of watches. Since teachings are middle way, since they are pointing to something timeless, it's a great pity if people are carrying around their watches and sitting in the meditation hall and then every five or ten minutes or worse checking out what the time is. So sometimes we, we've become such um, prisoners to the numbers of uh, time. I think it can be helpful and healthy and uh, useful. So feel free to wear your watch in the meditation hall Try to let go of the desperate need and desire to turn the wrist. That's all. So, rather than have a watch or a clock and put it in front of one, just catch the thought that says, I want to know what the time is. What time? What's a couple of numbers? So if we can just let all of that world be in the hall 
here in the morning period is just a little, the world of numbers, a little bit quieter, a little bit more forgetfulness of it. So we just learn to watch and catch waiting mind, or impatient mind, or wondering what the hell the time is mind. So just one person in the hall has the privilege, moi, at the time. In the monastery, which is, can be infuriatingly timeless, here at least, for the most part anyway, one knows that this talk, it won't go on too long. Half hour. 40 minutes, I'm getting clear from here to 40 minutes now, I see. But, those kind of sensibilities, those of you who have ever been in monasteries, have never been a concern. So, we could be in the monastery, start off 8 o'clock in the evening for the evening talk. One had no clue when it would close. No clue. One just sat and listened. Sometimes people like me, lazy, English, couldn't even understand. Still one had to go and lend an ear. One still had to sit. One couldn't sit with one's feet facing forward because regarded as, as we say, unkosher. Regarded as not very polite, doesn't matter in the West. And didn't have meditation cushions, didn't have chairs, didn't have wooden stools, etc. Flat bamboo mats on the wooden floor. One hour, two hours, three hours. Sometimes after midnight, the teacher, Ajahn Dhammadra, would still be going on. Monks falling asleep all over the place. <laughs> Nuns fading away, lay people in the hall fading away. Didn't bother him at all. He just carried on talking. No, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. And sometimes I just sat. And as we all knew in that hall, one with mosquitoes circulating, no, no, none of these windows, mosquitoes circulating around, happier skylights they were. Nice, safe environment to feast on. <laughs> And all that one could do in all of that was watch one's mind. Let go. Give up. Be with what is. Stay steady. Watch the reactivity. Be patient. Those kind of practices are... uh, Practices which help us to just stay steady. And maybe we get the sense and appreciation and the challenge for that. Then lots of other situations in life which bring up the agitation, bring up the impatience, bring up the reactivity. We say in those times, in those experiences, the first thought that comes with some power to it is, Haha, this situation is my practice. 
This situation isn't a situation for me to make something work out the way that I want it to. This situation isn't a situation for me to um, go cursing and swearing at Richard Branson because his lousy trains never seem to run on time. No, this is a situation for my practice. This is a situation to learn to be with. One might write a letter of protest or whatever, fair enough. But one says that this is one's practice. All of that is part of the work, the great challenge for all human beings to see whether it's possible to transform our way of living. To free us up. And that's what the middle way is about. So, that was five minutes of encouragement. Forget the watches, hang in. With the day itself, there's the afternoon talk, four o'clock in the afternoon, there's a uh, evening program, 7.30 to 8.30, that will vary one evening and uh, um, another uh, evening. There will be time put up to um, meet with some of you on the one-to-one, uh, etc. All of that I'll speak about much more um, in the in general instructions in the first uh, period after the work period. Just two or three other things I'd like to uh, mention before uh, coming to a close. Uh, one uh, are the uh, ethics. And the uh, ethics, very important thing of life, and that is not causing harm. To live with enough awareness in life, enough uh, sensitivity, enough sense of presence in life, can we be vigilant in our way of living in the world that we endeavour not to cause harm. And sometimes, in, in being all too human with life, when that happens, through whatever that may reason that may be, hopefully we vigilant, we are aware, we attend to that, we address what needs to be addressed, so that the principle is strong with us, it's alive with us, it's committed to it, uh, to it and it helps in keeping that flow with the middle way. Here, one of the features of the day, of the time that we're here together, is the silence. And silence And I think we're all privileged, really, to have some time and opportunity to be in such lovely nature, to be in a lovely resource and facility there. Opportunity, of course, to speak in many Dharma halls, and uh, Dharma halls, Gaia House is an especially beautiful one and in the very immediacy of the environment which is just around us. Please make full use of the silence. Both to give support to each other, 
and also the huge support that it gives to oneself to feel the silence, to rest in the silence, to to be at to be at home in the silence, to sense it, to sense the palpable, touchable feeling about silence. And meditators, the contemplatives, the saints and the sages of past and present have shared and respected and expressed a tremendous love for silence. Sometimes, in the day, in the middle of the night, it doesn't matter. One can wake up in the middle of the night and just quietly get up and sometimes just be outside and just feel the night air, sense the stillness of it, feel one's aloneness in this in this great universe. And that is willing to right behind here, those of you know, there's a cemetery. Spend time in the cemetery. We're all going there. Pay an early visit. Spend some time in the stillness and the silence of life. Feel the impermanence of it, the changeable moment-to-moment nature of it. So that we sense life, the vulnerability of it, the wonder of it, the beauty of it, the the very fragility of it, the the, the brevity of it. The great pity make our life so busy, we miss all of that. So we have our methods and our forms and our practices as a support, we have the silence as a support, but it's also pointing to something else, very deep, very profound, very freeing. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.